0: Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine, with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. Every week in the UK, we lose the lives, sadly, of 12 otherwise fit and healthy young people to sudden cardiac death. It's one of the biggest causes of death in young people, and something that the charity Cardiac Risk in the Young has been working to change since their inception back in 1995. Their CEO... Is Dr. Stephen Cox.
1: There are a number of different conditions which can cause young sudden death. They can be electrical conditions or structural conditions. Often a cardiac faint, as we saw with Christian Erikson, shows just how sudden these collapses can be. There's absolutely no warning. And in 80% of young sudden deaths, there are no symptoms whatsoever. So sometimes there are symptoms like exercise-related chest pain, palpitation, dizziness, breathlessness. But these are either quite easily dismissed for other reasons or they don't exist at all. So the first time this happens is a sudden collapse and sometimes the death can be prevented through early CPR, early AEDs, but so often that is just not possible. The vast majority of young sudden deaths occur at rest or even during sleep where certain procedures we would have are not going to be relevant.
0: Stephen, what advice would you offer concerned parents, carers and young people themselves?
1: Cry's advice is that every fit and healthy young person from the age of 14 up should be aware of the screening service that we offer and they should take that opportunity to register an interest to be screened. At the moment, our events are booking up incredibly quickly. The programme went down as we all responded to COVID and it's now back up and running again and we're doing the best we can to test all those people who want to be tested There is a backlog, and so people do need to be patient. We will get there eventually. So register an interest on our website, testmyheart.org.uk, and eventually we will be getting to your community able to offer that screening and we would just urge every young person to have their heart checked there's much we can do once a condition is identified to reduce the chance of something going terribly wrong and some of the most important research we did with elite footballers showed that 75 percent of the elite footballers were able to return to their professional sport having been identified with a condition having received management advice to reduce their risk of having any cardiac arrest. So it's really important that people know they have the condition, and usually they will be able to continue their life completely as normal. But sometimes they will have to make lifestyle choices, like potentially not being a professional
0: there isn't an nhs cardiac risk screening program for young people which i know is a cause of constant frustration for the charity and your supporters prior to the pandemic cry thanks to your fundraising efforts were screening 30,000 young people a year what were the numbers of potential problems you were detecting
1: one in 300 people we test routinely will be identified with a cardiac condition which could be potentially life threatening one in 100 people we screen will be identified with a condition which may not not be immediately life-threatening but will actually prevent them presenting in a cardiology ward in their 40s or their 50s when they're breathless at a time when the condition is much harder to manage and treat so it's really important to identify conditions early so that we can manage them we can monitor them and we can give that lifestyle advice to help them live the best quality of life possible. My
0: grateful thanks to Dr Stephen Cox from Cry to find out more about sudden cardiac death in the young and to sign up for a place on the Cry screen program log on to our website www.wordandhealth.com that's www.wordandhealth.com you can find us on facebook or follow us on twitter our address being at word on health word on health feel very best of health It's a disease that can be hard to spot. It can be fatal within 24 hours of the first symptoms appearing and the best way to protect yourself is to be aware of it and make sure you've received all the available vaccines against it. Claire Wright is from the Meningitis Research Foundation.
2: Meningitis is like the inflammation of the membranes that surround and protect the brain and spinal cord. It's most often as a result of an infection caused by bacteria or viruses and fungi. The most severe cases of meningitis are caused by bacteria. People who get bacterial meningitis can also sometimes have septicemia and that's blood poisoning. Around one in ten of people who get meningitis can die and around one third will be left with permanent after-effects. UK. In the past decade, there have been approximately 2,500 cases of bacterial meningitis and associated septicemia every year.
0: Claire, where do we pick up the bacteria that causes meningitis?
2: Many people carry the bacteria in the back of the nose and throat, so it is commonly carried. There are four main bacteria, pneumococcal bacteria, haemophilus influenza type B, meningococcal bacteria and there's also a bacteria that particularly affects newborns babies which is called group b streptococcal bacteria and we've made a fantastic strides in preventing three main causes there still isn't a vaccine for group b strep bacteria which is the one that affects newborns but there are great strides in developing a vaccine for that type it will be a vaccine that will be administered to pregnant women because one in four pregnant women carry this bacteria then that will be a fantastic advancement in adding to the arsenal if you like against the leading causes of meningitis globally.
0: So once this new vaccine becomes available, will it mean we're on our way to defeating meningitis?
2: Probably not, unfortunately. It is a constantly evolving problem. So if we were to take as an example the pneumococcal cause of meningitis, there was a vaccine originally introduced in 2006 which protected against the seven leading strains of pneumococcal bacteria and that was really successful. But then what we started to see was that there was an increase in strains that weren't contained in the vaccine because as well as stopping the disease, it was stopping people from carrying the bacteria, which is great, but then other bacteria move into that niche, if you like, and then start to cause disease as well. Then in 2010, there was another vaccine for pneumococcal disease introduced, which protected against 13 strains. And it, again, was, has been fantastically successful. But we are seeing increases in diseases and strains that aren't contained in that vaccine again. So we're having to increase the numbers of strains which we protect against in the vaccines that are being produced. It's a constantly evolving problem, which is why funding research continues to be incredibly important.
0: So is- Is it only children who are most at risk of developing meningitis? Anyone can get meningitis or septicemia, but there are different factors that can put people
2: at increased risk. In general, young children are at the highest risk of getting bacterial meningitis because they have less developed immune systems. After young babies, teenagers are the next highest risk group for meningitis caused by meningococcal bacteria. Things like where you live can increase your risk. So some countries have higher rates of meningitis. Countries in sub-Saharan Africa have a much higher rate than the rest of the world and are prone to epidemics. And there are other things like mass gatherings, exposure to smoke, which can increase People's risk as well. If people have problems with their immune system, they can also have increased risk of contracting bacterial meningitis. So it's worth finding out if you have a medical condition which increases your risk, because you might be entitled to extra vaccinations for protection.
0: I mentioned in my introduction the symptoms can be hard to spot. What should we be looking for?
2: The first hard to distinguish from mild viral illness, things like fever, vomiting and headache. But someone who has a serious illness like meningitis or septicemia can become very ill very quickly. Some of the more characteristic symptoms of meningitis can be things like rash, neck stiffness, dislike of bright light and confusion and also you can get limb pain, pale skin and cold hands and feet and they're sort of the more septicemia like symptoms. Not everyone will get all of the symptoms and so it's really important for people to trust their instinct and keep checking on people who are unwell if you're worried and seek medical help immediately if you have a gut instinct that someone's seriously unwell.
0: I understand to detect if the rash is due to meningitis, a glass tumbler can help.
2: The tumbler test is to check for septicemic-like symptoms. It causes capillary leak, which is where the blood leaks from the capillaries and goes to the surface of the skin. So the suggestion is to push a glass tumbler over the area of skin where you can see the rash and if it doesn't fade under pressure then that could be a serious symptom and you should seek medical help immediately.
0: COVID-19 has interrupted the childhood immunisation programme. A lot is being done to catch up. Where are the particular causes for concern?
2: Uptakes have been lower, particularly amongst booster doses. So children have a booster dose at one year of age. It's also worth mentioning that there is a teenage programme for protection of meningococcal disease as well. And during the previous academic year, there were quite substantial, interruptions to that teenage programme that's administered through schools because of school closures and during the last academic year there are around 1 in 4 14 year olds who remain unimmunised so again it's really important for parents just to check whether their teenagers have been vaccinated and if they haven't then they can be vaccinated again during school this academic year or to approach the GP and to make sure they've had their men ACWI vaccine.
0: My grateful thanks to Claire Wright from the Meningitis Research Foundation to find out more log on to. our website www.wordandhealth.com that's www.wordandhealth.com you can find us on facebook or follow us on twitter our address being at word on health keeping you in touch with the health and lifestyle issues that matter this is word on health with paul pennington Around 1 in 4 of us have a weakness in the valve at the bottom of our esophagus or gullet, which allows acidic stomach contents to splash back up the esophagus, causing heartburn or gourd. For most, heartburn and gourd are just a nuisance that through lifestyle and dietary changes assisted with help from our GP or pharmacist can be managed successfully. But for those of us living with persistent heartburn over 3-4 to weeks, or if your heartburn persists even after avoiding trigger foods and changing your lifestyle, it requires further investigation, as Julie Thompson from the charity Guts UK explains
3: really because with reflux there are people who can develop something called Barrett's esophagus and this is where there is a change in the cells in the esophagus. They change to a different type of cell and for a small number of those people that can go on to develop esophageal cancer. There are other symptoms like unintentional weight loss, pain on swallowing, difficulty swallowing or just a feeling that food's getting stuck. Talking, being sick, coughing, unexplained chest infections or a hoarse voice. If people are struggling for over three to four weeks and having these types of symptoms, they should contact their doctor.
0: Julie, if you live with heartburn and gourd, does that put you at a heightened risk of developing esophageal cancer?
3: is very small but it's really important that Barrett's esophagus if that occurs is identified because Barrett's esophagus makes the risk higher although it has to be said that not everybody with Barrett's esophagus will go on to develop esophageal cancer and usually when we think of cancer we think of a lump or a bump but esophageal cancer is deep inside the body and therefore it's less obvious and actually there are no blood tests that you can use to identify it and there's no NHS national screening programs that are used to identify identify it And all these factors together really make it a lot more difficult to diagnose early.
0: So if symptoms persist over weeks, you shouldn't just self-medicate and hope for the best.
3: If people need these medications longer than four weeks, or they're just not working for them, they should get in touch with their doctor. It is important that Barrett's esophagus is recognised.
0: Acephageal cancer is the ninth most common form of cancer in the world. I see from NHS data that the proportion of this type of cancer diagnosed in accident and emergency is far higher than for more survivable cancers.
3: Unfortunately, this cancer is often diagnosed at a late stage. There might be no treatment that can make the cancer go away completely, but there might be some treatment that can control symptoms. And unfortunately, a very stark statistic is that
2: only sort of 15 out of 100 people will survive five years or more when they've been diagnosed with esophageal cancer.
0: My grateful thanks to Julie Thompson from the charity Guts UK. For further information on this story and links through to the charity, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Word on Health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health.